I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Emily Venturi, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast of Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you with us. And I'm really excited today to be joined by a new colleague of mine, Emily Venturi. Hi, how are you? Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very well. Excellent, excellent. Got kind of split loyalties in the studio today because obviously tensions are running high in this week of recording, which also coincides with the uh, finals of the European Championships football. And we've got uh, we've got English and Italian loyalties here in the studio. But I mean, obviously, by the time this episode comes out, we'll know the result. But Hopefully. whatever happens, good luck, Emily. Hopefully we'll be celebrating Italy, but we'll see. <laughs> May the best team win. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going to say about that. Um, so, Emily, you're the Schwartzman Academy Fellow in the Asia Pacific programme here at Chatham House. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what work you're doing at the moment? Yes, of course. Um, So I have the pleasure of being hosted in the Asia-Pacific programme and I work on refugee policy issues in Asia, particularly looking at China, Japan and India's engagement with international refugee instruments, such as the recently affirmed Global Compact on Refugees. So I'm particularly excited today for our guest speaker on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a fantastic guest lined up for you today. It's uh, just going to be the one interview this week. And that interview is with Gillian Triggs. Gillian is the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at the UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency. Gillian's been at the forefront of refugee policy in Australia as President of the Australian Human Rights Commission and now at the United Nations. As Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, she oversees the agency's international protection work for literally millions of refugees, internally displaced and stateless people and other people in need of protection around the world. And we're really, really lucky to have half an hour with Gillian in in her extremely busy schedule. And we will come to that interview soon. But before we do, I thought it would be worth, Emily, just you outlining a bit of the background for us on the challenge of facing refugee populations around the world. So could you maybe start off by just telling us a bit about what we mean, we're going to hear this term quite a lot in the conversation of forced displacement. What do we mean by that? And, and what's the scale of that problem? Yes, so it's a particularly salient moment to be in conversation with Gillian Triggs because this month it's the 70th anniversary of the 1951 Refugee Convention, the foundational legal instrument to international refugee law. And it's really there that we find the definition that is mostly used uh, with regard to who qualifies as a refugee. Mm. So a refugee, according to the convention, is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons that can vary from race to religion, nationality, political opinion, and so on. So as you can see, um, this definition is quite wide ranging um, Mm. and it uh, encompasses a variety of reasons why someone would be forced to flee their hometown or their home country. Most recently, beyond this definition, we've also seen other key drivers of displacement that really take us beyond this initial definition from 1951. But maybe we can get into that a bit later, Ben. To answer your question on the scale of the problem, we've really been seeing an uptake in forced displacement over the last decade at worrying rates. According to the most recent statistics, 
Today, 82.4 million people around the world are forcibly displaced. That's more than the population of the United Kingdom. What does this number encompass? Well, so within this number, 26 million people are refugees, meaning that um, they have crossed an international border and sought asylum. However, we also see 48 million people who are internally displaced. And this means someone who has been forced to flee their hometown, but have not been able to cross an international border. And we see that this number is particularly high, almost double than the traditional definition of refugee that we mostly see in the news. Lastly, it's also important to mention that within forcibly displaced populations, we also account for stateless populations. And these are populations who do not have a citizenship and therefore are particularly vulnerable and particularly excluded from national healthcare, economic, social, educational systems and so on. Really interesting. I just wanted to pick up, as you, as you mentioned just at the end of your first answer there, just on the drivers of displacement that are affecting these populations because it's not it's not solely conflict is it there are many different reasons why people would begin to move so could you maybe outline a few of those for us yes of course so firstly it must be said that ongoing conflicts are a primary and very worrying cause for displacement the largest refugee producing countries are countries that are currently in conflict or post-conflict so these include Syria Afghanistan South Sudan and Myanmar However, in addition to conflict, we also see a variety of aggravating factors. Most of all, namely, right now, the COVID-19 global pandemic has really exacerbated existing vulnerabilities and put a lot of pressure on vulnerable populations, populations on the move, populations seeking asylum. We also see climate change as an increasingly serious driver for forced displacement or as an aggravating factor within displacement situations. Lastly, it's also important to mention that overall state fragility is also a very important factor to consider. Mm. When I say state fragility, I mean countries where the political system has become unable to provide basic social services for its citizens or the economy has become unsustainable. A key example, for instance, is Venezuela, where we've seen huge numbers of people cross over into neighbouring states uh, because of the social political and economic collapse of the country. So these are all reasons that might not specifically fit within the 1951 Refugee Convention definition, but are definitely aggravating factors that are being dealt with in a variety of ways in different contexts. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Could you maybe tell us a bit about how international law around refugee protection has changed over time? Because obviously we've spoken a lot about this Refugee Convention from 1951, And that's still very much a kind of foundation for global cooperation on this issue. But as you say, the picture has become far more complex as as years have gone on. People have become more aware of different drivers. Have there been sort of updates to this? What other agreements exist between states about how we deal with refugees? Yes, you're, you're spot on there, Ben. So the 1951 convention is also important to mention. It was developed in Europe as a direct result of displacement following World War II. So it's a very contextual origin for the convention that was not initially global in its consultations or its applications. It was then extended with its 1967 protocol. But since then, we've really not had any hard law updates to international refugee law. What we do see is a variety of regional responses. South America in particular, Africa, Europe, all have common instruments that states use when 
responding to forced displacement at a regional level. However, when it comes to hard law updates, we really haven't seen much. And it's quite a vibrant debate within both scholarly and practitioner communities as to where we go from here. Also important to mention, um, the latest update that we don't see within hard law, but we see more within international cooperation, is the affirmation in 2018 of the Global Compact on Refugees, which is a text that was affirmed by consensus at the General Assembly that reaffirms state commitment to protection and solutions of forcibly displaced populations. This is an effort that was led by UNHCR to bring in a new diversity of stakeholders from the private sector, from civil society, reaffirming donor and host state commitments to displaced populations. However, it's important to note that this is not a legally binding instrument. And so the effects on solutions for displaced populations of the global compact are yet to be seen and are fiercely debated. That's such a great overview, Emily. Thanks so much. And I think it's the perfect segue now into our full interview with Gillian Triggs. Hope you enjoy it. Well, Gillian Triggs, thank you so much for joining us today on Undercurrents. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Ben. I'd like to begin with a with a pretty big question, I suppose, but I'm just really curious to know your thoughts. Obviously, we're still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that has brought with it some particularly sort of austere governmental responses across the world. Um, some very difficult choices have had to be made between civil liberties and public health. And I wondered if we could begin, maybe you could give us a sense of what the pandemic has meant for displaced populations in particular, and and also how it's affected the work of UNHCR. Well, thank you. And, And of course, COVID has had a huge impact on all vulnerable people all over the world. So I think that has to be understood. But of course, from the point of view of the UN Refugee Agency, we are particularly um, alert to the impact that it's had on on our fundamental principles, which of course is the right of access to territory to make a claim for asylum and an absolute prohibition on pushing anybody back to danger and violence. And what has happened is that at the height of the pandemic, let's say um, a year ago, we had 168 countries. So we have 193 in the United Nations system and 168 of them had closed their borders. An absolutely astonishing and truly uh, unique uh, situation where at least half of them completely denied even access for the purposes of making asylum. Now, the position has improved since then. So uh, we now have something like 55 countries that absolutely deny uh, access to asylum. So the point that we make and, and we've been making in advocacy ever since is that countries can both protect public health as a sovereign nations they must do, and we fully support that, but they can also ensure some access to territory. And many, many countries, particularly in Europe, have been using remote technologies, uh, allowing to submit documents remotely, digitally, interviews being conducted just as we are discussing now. So that's that's the first point. The second point, though, is one that we're now, we think, is going to be a long-term legacy, which is the social and economic impacts. Refugee children are least likely to go back to school when schools reopen. They tend not to have access to social services. They are in the informal economy. If they're lucky to have any kind of livelihood at all, they're the first to go. Uh, They're the first to be evicted from rental properties. 
And of course, there are always difficulties without documentation to have access to health. Now, I have to say that most countries recognize that a pandemic is no respecter of legal status. And, they, and most countries are sensible enough to know that you have to give access to health facilities. And slowly, although it's been disappointing, we're slowly seeing vaccines being rolled out. So I think um, just, just to summarize that point, the impact on all vulnerable people has been huge. But of course, refugees, displaced people, stateless people are the ones most likely to be at the bottom of that pile and most likely affected. It's clear that the COVID-19 pandemic, as you have outlined, has had really stark effects on asylum system. And when we zoom out and we look at the broader global picture, we also see that 85% of forcibly displaced people are hosted in low and middle-income countries. Many of these contexts are often referred to as protracted situations, uh, which means that refugees and displaced populations can find themselves displaced for 5, 10, 20 years. So in these cases where local resources are already strained and under increased considerable pressure, what are some of the main long-term protection concerns? And what are some avenues for sustainable solutions for forcibly displaced people and the host communities? Well, perhaps I could take the solutions point first, because for most people globally, they see the United Nations Refugee Agency as being almost branded with two solutions. One, helping people to return voluntarily to the country of origin where it's safe to do so. Most overwhelmingly, refugees, asylum seekers want to go home. Displaced people in their own countries want to go home to their villages, their towns, their lives. In protracted situations, that's simply impossible. And we're entering the fifth decade of the, of the conflict in Afghanistan, the 11th year in Syria, four years now for the Rohingya in Cox's Bazar, a million people hosted by Bangladesh. And then we're seeing new conflicts like um, uh, 800,000 at least displaced by the insurgency in Cabo Delgado in Mozambique. A traditional solution of voluntary returns is becoming extremely difficult to achieve in safety. The second one, of course, is resettlement. We are seen as an agency that submits people for resettlement to countries that will have a resettlement policy. And the COVID, of course, brought for a period a suspension of that of that program. And we've had the smallest numbers ever submitted for resettlement in the last year, fewer than 23,000 people, uh, when we have 26 or more million refugees, at least one and a half million needing urgent resettlement. So the traditional opportunities are not there. So we are looking to encourage countries to understand that inclusion is really the future. Now, that is a very tough message for us to, to, to give for precisely the reason, Emily, that you've raised, uh, that most displaced people, whether across national boundaries or in their own countries, are being hosted in poor environments or, or in countries with very few resources and where they're struggling to meet the needs of their own people. And that's the, that's the global tragedy, that the principle of the Global Compact on Refugees is equitable sharing of responsibilities, but that, frankly, is not really happening in, in the way that we, we'd all hoped. So uh, solutions are, are hard to find, and that is why we really, hard though it is, we have to say that we need to support efforts in host countries uh, to integrate and to help to pay for the services to, to allow, allow people to rebuild their lives in some form of a, a durable and sustainable way. Julian, if I could follow up on that with a quick question regarding the Global Compact on Refugees' focus on bringing in 
potentially new contributors to mm. these long-term solutions that aim to foster inclusion. I'm thinking, for example, of the private sector of development agencies. I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more to these ongoing efforts and where we see new avenues for potential collaborations and contributions to the plight of displaced people. Well, that's really what I'd see as the success story. As you'll know, the Refugee Convention was about state responsibilities for allowing access to territory to claim asylum and to, and to provide protection. What the compact has done, and, and as you know, it's not a legal document. It, it's aspirational. It sets out values and it sets out core principles that 181 countries have agreed to. But what is particularly interesting is that it in, includes not just sovereign nations, but civil society private enterprise, philanthropists, faith-based groups, local communities, the refugee voices themselves. And the technique has been through a system of pledging uh, that support will be provided by big companies. I've just been learning a little bit more about IKEA in Bosnia and, and Croatia, Vodafone, Uniqlo. These big groups, private groups, are now starting to work along with the World Bank, the international financial bodies across the world, along with individual philanthropists and faith-based groups. So we're seeing that engagement uh, through pledging, a matching of pledging with wealthy, wealthier communities, with, with poorer communities. And I think that that's the future. Sovereign nations have been, I think it's fair to say, a little disappointing during the COVID context. We've, we've tended to shrink into, our, uh, into ourselves in a protective way. And I think up to a point one can understand, of course, COVID was produce such tragic results with now nearly 4 million deaths, of course countries are going to be protective uh, of, the, of their own public health. We understand that. Uh, but it's been very encouraging that so many states have understood the need to, to meet their obligations nonetheless, and, and most have done. But what's been even more encouraging is the engagement of civil society in the private sector and so on, who are coming in under the auspices of the compact, not legally binding, but where it's a commitment to bring this assistance. And we think that oh, as these months go continue, we'll see a lifting of COVID for most parts of the world and we'll see an increased ability to provide some support uh, for these um, massively increasing numbers. We, we now have 82.5 million people who are within our mandate as, uh, as refugees and internally displaced people. So it's huge. Brilliant. Thanks so much for setting out the scale of the challenge there and, and the sort of prospects for that kind of multi-stakeholder approach does sound very promising, yeah. But I just wanted to pick you up on something uh, that you said just as part of your answer there around the role of nation states and how maybe the pandemic has kind of limited their ability to support these efforts. I just wondered whether there should be cause for concern that, that this trend might continue even as we emerge from the pandemic. I mean, there's been several stories across donor countries in, in Europe in particular, where on a domestic level, these issues around asylum, refugees um, are sort of closely related to migration and governments uh, particularly trying to relate those two things. And, and we've seen, for instance, in Denmark, um, the decision to repatriate Syrian refugees. And also in the UK, there's a lot of rhetoric around the government's new plan for asylum and immigration, which seems to take a much harsher stance. So I just wondered whether you had any comment to make on what's going on in these countries and, and whether that's actually going to prove a, a serious obstacle to progress. Well, it's been rather distressing for us at UNHCR 
to observe the huge hospitality and generosity of spirit in Africa, in Latin America, parts of Europe and Asia, but to see our traditional supporters for the principles of, of refugee law in Europe, but particularly in Denmark and now the United Kingdom, denying those principles. And I, we are very, very concerned, and I've been, of course, speaking about this as much as I can. I'm very concerned that some countries will use COVID as an opportunity to maintain restrictions and to deny the, the fundamental principles. Now, you know, optimistically, one would say as COVID lifts, we would see a return to the normative, you know, the usual principles, where almost all countries in the world recognise the obligation to grant access to territory to claim asylum. But from a, a European perspective, and most troubling from the UK perspective and Denmark, this, this attempt to criminalise people seeking asylum and to deny access to asylum and indeed to externalise that obligation to poor countries in Africa is almost unbelievable. It is such a denial of their traditional support in the years after the Second World War for the for the uh, largely Jewish diaspora, the, 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 the number of displaced people after the Second World War, the United Kingdom was a, a leader, a global leader, to be doing what they're doing now, 70 years later, and it's 70 years since the Refugee Convention was agreed. It's an understatement to say how disappointed we are by that. But you raise an important point, and it's one that I think we need to talk about, and that is that these are mixed movements are very often coming into Europe. It's not a mixed movement for a million Rohingya to leave Myanmar. They are refugees and they're being pushed out by the most brutal crimes. It's not a mixed movement for people leaving Mozambique across the border to Tanzania, where they're escaping, beheading and villages being burned. They're, they're not mixed movements. But some of the movements coming up from North Africa, from the Sahel, or up through the, the Atlantic to the Canary Islands and Spain, these are mixed movements. And it may very well be true that most are not refugees. They will not meet the legal standard of refugees. And I think that this is causing a level of confusion in the public mind because people say, you know, what, what is this? Well, of course, we, we want to support refugees. But these people, they're not refugees. They're migrants. They're, they're, they're young people, typically young men, looking for a new opportunity in life. Now, I can hardly blame them. Of course, I don't blame them. Of course, we, we, when young, a young man in Burkina Faso who's got a mobile phone, sees how much of the rest of the world is living and has no access to education, no opportunity for a future and every chance of being attacked by an insurgent religious group. Who could blame him or her for taking these dangerous routes? What we're trying to do is to stabilise populations, improve poverty with the banks, with the loans and so on, to, to look at the development opportunities. But to come back to my point, these are mixed movements. And what we want is to have fast and fair systems to determine who needs protection under the refugee system and by human rights law and who really needs to be returned to their country of origin. Sad though that it, that is, and I would want, you know, when you meet real human beings in this situation, you, you don't want to be returning them home. But in truth, to preserve the, the asylum system, we need to be sure that it's possible to return. And that's proved to be very, very difficult in practice. That challenges the credibility of the asylum system and is something we're really trying to work on. But I think by your raising the question, it gives me an opportunity to, to really recognise that there are elements of the asylum system that are not working well. But we would suggest 
that the UK and the, the Danish responses are not the way to respond to this problem. We would much rather strengthen the asylum system than ad adopt a criminalizing uh, stance which is being made by the United Kingdom. Now, for your listeners, they can probably hear uh, some Australian accent here. And I have to say that Australia has been the leader in adopting this externalization policy. So I, I, for any, uh, to, to respond to anybody saying, uh, well, you know, what about your own country? But of course, as you know very well, uh, in the UN as a UN official, uh, we are politically neutral and we don't carry our nationality with us. But, um, but, but I have to acknowledge that. Absolutely. Well, that was going to be one of my follow-up questions. <laughs> thank you for that. I just wanted to ask, you know, obviously you've been very forthright there and, and thank you for being so frank with us. I just wondered if you have any thoughts on what more can be done to hold states to account for not upholding international law around refugees. I mean, obviously expressions of concern are, are extremely important, but are there any kind of ways of monitoring and ensuring accountability for this beyond making statements? Well, we have, one of our, our core functions is monitoring. And, and we monitor. And uh, if I can take an example, when I, I, I've had the opportunity with my colleagues to, to go to Greece, we saw the camps in uh, Lesvos. Uh, in fact, we left two days before the fire at, at the Moria camp. So we knew what the conditions were like. But we also knew from first-hand evidence about the, the pushbacks were happening, that, that people coming from Lebanon, coming from Turkey, were being pushed back at sea with great danger to their lives, but also in clear breach of the fundamental principle about deny or, or prohibiting returns to, to danger and, and persecution. Now, we provide uh, concrete, highly credible evidence of these breaches to the government, and we ask the government to, to respond, to inquire uh, and to respond. But we're not the sec uh, Security Council. We can't issue sanctions. We're not a sovereign nation. We can't uh, use trade sanctions, for example, against, against somebody. We are very limited in that sense. Our role is persuasive, but also supportive of governments. So what we try to do is to persuade governments to live up to their expectations. And a very interesting point is that no government that I've ever spoken to will ever deny uh, the viability of the core principles of international law. They will all say they abide by international law. We can say, well, we have evidence here that perhaps you haven't abided by those principles. And they will usually say, well, we intend to abide by the principles and we will investigate these breaches. Now, that doesn't really reflect the reality on the ground, but persuasion, advocacy and offers of support are really our roles. Fantastic. Switching gears a bit. Something that affects all countries is climate change. And climate change is increasingly a driver for displacement or also aggravating the vulnerability of those who have already been forced to flee. How can states prepare to respond to rising trends in climate-induced forced displacement? Well, I think for the first point and the key one is that climate is, of course, a, has a multiplier effect. It's not the only cause of displacement but it's a significant, increasingly significant one. If you look at the Sahel, the loss of grazing lands, the loss of arable lands, the extreme heat and loss of access to water resources, these are leading to conflict and violence, discrimination, persecution, and that in turn leads to displacement. So we think that, um, to quote the High Commissioner, when the fog of COVID lifts, as it surely will, the, the problem we, and the challenge we're going to be meeting is climate-related 
displacements. And that's really going to be a key priority for us in the next, the next few years. I should point out, of course, that the Human Rights Committee has already in its jurisprudence, in its, in its legal reasoning, on a case that concerned um, rising sea levels in Kiribati in the Pacific, that uh, where a government is unable to protect its people um, and to protect the right to life, then it will become possible that uh, a claim to asylum and to international protection uh, for those essentially leaving or, or fleeing the effects of climate change will be possible. So I think that's we can see the future there. We know that's going to be critical. Excellent. And from an organisational perspective, UNHCR has just turned 70 during one of the most uncertain times for the world to have such an anniversary. So looking ahead at the next 70 years for UNHCR, what are the organisation's areas of focus? You've mentioned already some of them being climate change, for example. And what are the areas that would benefit from change? Well, certainly we'll be looking at environmental degradation and climate as a, as a, as a mean of displacement. What we are really focusing on, as I said earlier, is the need for inclusion, because resettlement and voluntary repatriation is, at least in the short term, extremely difficult and probably even in the medium to long term. So where we are placing a very strong focus over these coming years is working with the peace groups to try to prevent conflict or to achieve peace, but most particularly to work with the development sector. In other words, we have to work more on root causes. Poverty, inequality, gender inequality, environmental degradation, and the needs for inclusion in good hospitals, improving infrastructure, and so on. So that is why the High Commissioner for Refugees is is looking so we're working so closely now with the World Bank, which last year made grants as well as loans on favourable conditions to fifteen or sixteen main countries where 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 we see huge problems, particularly in Africa and uh, the Middle East. So I see the future as being one where we work hand in glove right from the beginning on root causes with peace and development groups. That is where we we have to deal with emergencies in the refugee agency. Of course we do. People without shelter, without food, of course we have to work. We we will never let, uh, you know, we will never not do that. Uh, But we have to work with governments and with the financial institutions and private sector to to work on, on root causes, one of them being astonishing levels of inequality. Uh, some countries in Africa have one or two ventilators, almost no access to oxygen, a very few intensive care units available to people. These are primitive, primitive conditions. And, and uh, in the 21st century, that it's uh, absolutely unacceptable. So we have to work, UNHCR has to work in, with a, in a much wider landscape of, of development and peace and work across the world. So I think that's our challenge for the future. We've spoken about a lot of different challenges today in this conversation, but I've wondered whether we could end on a note, just some reflections on where refugee protection is being done well at the moment. Are there examples of best practice that you think other countries should learn from and that could be modelled? Well, one that comes immediately to mind is Colombia. We've got nearly six million people forcibly displaced from Venezuela in North Central America, and they're being hosted across the entire region with extraordinary um, levels of generosity. But we have never, I don't believe ever in the history of the United Nations Refugee Agency, ever seen such an extraordinary response by Colombia. They are granting a 10-year temporary protection status to 1.7, at least 1.7 displaced people from Venezuela. And they are building a pathway after the 10 years towards full citizenship. So they, will, they can access to work, 
to education for the children, to vaccines, healthcare, uh, social welfare systems. They have simply been embraced by this remarkable government in Colombia. And that really is, I can't think of a better best practice, but there are many others. And sadly, to pick up Emma's point, sadly, some of those best practices are by some of the poorest countries in the world. And that's that's a lesson for us all, I think. Gillian Triggs, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. All right, so we're back here in a very cold Chatham House Media studio after our conversation with Gillian Triggs. Um, and Emily's still with me. Emily, how did you think that went? It was a truly fascinating conversation with Gillian. My main takeaway is really her readiness to underscore the urgency of the COVID-19 pandemic and it, the huge effects that it's having on border closures and national asylum systems. I think, interestingly, the long-term effects are yet to be seen. And my takeaway is that local and national governments really have some key decisions to make right now as slowly countries start emerging from the pandemic, even if it's still quite a precarious situation that we're all still in. There's a real opportunity to take policy in a progressive direction rather than to backtrack on international refugee law commitments as a result of the pandemic. So I think we're in a very key moment um, and it's going to be interesting to watch how states react and hopefully keep the pressure on them to make the right decision. Couldn't agree more. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me for this episode. It was great to hear your thoughts and, and hear your questions. Thanks for having me, Ben. Nice. Well, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you enjoyed listening. We will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode for you. We will continue to publish episodes over the summer, although they might be a bit further apart than they normally are. If you want to support the podcast, if you're a fan, I mean, if you've listened this long, you probably are, then uh, please subscribe on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this and leave us a review or rate us because it really makes a difference to how people find the podcast. If you want to keep up with more of Chatham House's work, be that on refugee protection or a whole range of other international affairs issues, the best way to do that is to visit our website, www.chathamhouse.org or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>